part 16, at least. Several months ago, I started to preach sermons on the law of God, focusing on the place of the Ten Commandments in Christian ethics, and then kind of drilling down even farther on what do we do with the fourth commandment? Because that's the, that's the juggler for most Christians. What do we do with the fourth commandment? And uh, my argument has been that we should obey it in the way God requires us. Now, it's easy to say that, but it's hard for some Christians to understand how the Sabbath commandment applies to believers in Christ. It's hard for Christians I'd say harder in our day than most of the history of the church. But there's various objections that people bring to that. Uh, One objection to the perpetuity, the abiding validity of the fourth commandment, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, I dealt with last time. It's basically, it says this, the Sabbath started with ancient Israel's covenant with God and ends when their covenant with God ends. The covenant between God and ancient Israel ended in the first century. It fulfilled its purposes. It's been abrogated by fulfillment. Therefore, the fourth commandment goes with it. I've been arguing that there's something more uh, ancient to the fourth commandment than just its unique place with ancient Israel. We've seen, for instance, the clincher words for me. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. If you have a red letter Bible, those words are in the red letters in Mark chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus puts the origin of the Sabbath at the creation, the account of creation, at creation. Man was made and then a Sabbath was made for man. A Sabbath is for the benefit of man, it is not to be the worst day of the week. It should be the best day of the week. Now, if you've read the Bible, by the time Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, he's dealing with a lot of added laws to the fourth commandment that the Jews made so that the, such that the Pharisees made the fourth commandment a huge burden and a day of gloom. I think I told you the story about the guy in seminary who said he had a Jewish neighbor that on Saturdays. He'd, the kids had to go over there every hour or so and change the TV station for him because he didn't want to break the Sabbath. It's like uh, just kind of odd, okay? So pushback on this is out there and it's in our heads and hearts you know all of us have to work through this issue Um, he was saying to them the sabbath was made for man and not man for the sabbath consequently the son of man is lord even of the sabbath so that's jesus words not the sabbath was made for the jews but the sabbath was made for man that's its creational origin So just like the institution of marriage and just like the institution of labor, so the instituted Sabbath in the seven-day cycle is of creational um, origin. And then Jesus claims lordship over the Sabbath. We're going to look at Jesus' words next week. But that's very interesting. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think the best way to take that in the context is that, and he's removing all these extra addendums that you guys have created, you Pharisees have created, and made in it made made that day uh, a burden to his people. Now we've looked at various things. We looked at the law written on the heart. We looked at all kinds of things. I'm not going to give a big review. I will say this though. We looked at the Sabbath embodied in the fourth commandment of the 10 last time. Remember that? We were at Sinai. And I was saying there's something unique even about the wording of the fourth commandment in the Exodus account. It grounds it in creation as well as the words of Christ does that. But Exodus also grounds it in creation. And man got a Sabbath revealed to him when God rested. There's, so Moses... The way he writes uh, the the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 indicates to us that Sabbath, whatever it is, okay, it predates 
ancient Israel. I would just say this about Sabbath. A simple definition would be one day in seven is to be distinct, not a normal work day, but is to be devoted to the Lord. One day in seven is to be distinct, not a normal work day, but is to be devoted to the Lord. So even in the giving of the law in Exodus 20, we have creational connection there. But then somebody might say, yeah, but that was Israel. That was Israel. Uh, So it's unique to them. Thou shalt not covet. That was Israel. So it's unique to them. We don't want to do that, do we? Uh, I don't think we want to. But it's a good pushback. Okay, it was ancient Israel. Uh, Wasn't this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ? And so then I said, well, what if Israel was under some sort of Sabbath before Exodus 20? Because the formalizing of the Mosaic or Old Covenant doesn't, isn't recorded for us until Exodus 24. So this is before, formally, before the covenant was enacted, they had this fourth commandment revealed to them. Then we saw in Exodus 16, there's Sabbath gets some press there, and God actually chides his people for being in a pattern of not obeying his laws, statutes, and ordinances, or whatever the triad of terms was there. I don't know if you remember that. I remember that because I preached it, but I've read it many times. I read up on it. God chides through Moses ancient Israel in the wilderness for constantly violating the Sabbath. The assumption is some form of Sabbath was communicated to them prior to the wilderness. So we're going through the Old Testament. So we started at creation. uh, We went to Sinai. Now we're going to go to the prophets. What do the prophets tell us about this issue of the fourth commandment? And one reason for doing this is understanding Old Testament prophecy on this issue helps us understand some difficult New Testament texts on this issue. Let no man judge you about new moons, festivals, and Sabbaths, Colossians 2.16. You ever read that before? If you haven't, I just quoted. That is the written word of God by the apostle, an organ uh, agent of revelation through which revelation from Christ came in the first century, and he says that very clearly in Colossians 2.16. Three, those three terms together, new moons, Sabbaths, festivals. I think that's the order. Now I'm saying if we go back and study the prophets, it will help us get a grip on what's going on with those words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.16. So that means... I am saying to you that Paul didn't make up that triad of terms in Colossians. It's in the prophets. And it's in the prophets in very unique context. So in going in a chronological order through the Bible, we're at the prophets asking the question, what did the prophets do with the Sabbath? We're not going to answer it in its full. We're not going to go to every single text. We're going to reduce all the teaching to two major Uh, headings. And that is this. The first is the Old Testament prophesies the abrogation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths. The prophets prophesy that in the future, at some point in those days, Israel's Festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths are abrogated because they served their purpose to point to something greater. Okay, the prophets are going to tell us that. But the prophets are also going to do this. They're also going to tell us under the inaugurated new covenant, in the days of the inaugurated new covenant, after the cross and resurrection of Christ, There is an abiding Sabbath in the prophets. So they do two things. We have the prophetic abrogation by virtue of fulfillment of ancient Israel's unique festivals, new moon sacrifices, Sabbaths, and all that. But you also have this other strand of teaching that says, but there's going to be a Sabbath, though. And it's, it's, it's kind of an odd thing at first. I want you to kind of feel the 
apparent contradiction there. Um, it's not a real contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all if you understand what's going on here. So my first heading, uh, reducing a lot of information from the Old Testament prophets to, uh, to less than an hour, is this. The Old Testament prophesies a Sabbath for the inaugurated New Covenant era. I'm saying the Old Testament in the prophets looks forward to the days of Messiah, the days in which we live, and it says there's going to be a Sabbath there. Now, what it looks like, it doesn't say much about that, but the fact that there's going to be one there uh, is very clear. And, and this shouldn't surprise us, surprise us. The Sabbath was made for man. Okay? It's a beneficial institution. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Okay? It's from God, not the devil. God's not against us with the Sabbath. It's actually for our blessing and benefit. Now, the, the Old Testament prophets prophesy a perpetual Sabbath under the New Covenant era in at least two ways. One is an, an implicit way, and the other is explicit with words that we got to deal with. We'll get there in a second, hopefully. The implicit way is this. I will write my law on their hearts. Remember that, Jeremiah 31? I, I preached a sermon or three or four or five or six, I don't know. We trace that language of God writing a law. First of all, the, the language goes back to God writing the law on the stone tablets. And then when you go forward and Paul picks up the language of new covenant, because that's Jeremiah 31, 33, the promise of the new covenant. When Paul picks up that language in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of heart. So the question is, what is the law that's being written? It's this work of renovation, refreshing, saving, uh, cleansing us uh, from our sins and, and allowing us to, to, to see God's law for what it is and to have it to, to be the regulating uh, ethical norm of our life. It's the same law he wrote on stone tablets, and uh, we dealt with that. So that's an implicit argument. If the law is going to be written on our hearts under the new covenant, uh, inaugurated days of the new covenant, then, then there must be some form of the fourth commandment that's, that's there as well. Since the law that God wrote on stone tablets, he writes on tablets of flesh that is the heart. So, but today I want to focus on an explicit text concerning the Sabbath in Old Testament prophecy. And so that would be Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. That's the passage we're going to look at. Uh, and then what we're going to do is we're going to try to, we're going to ask the New Questament, New Questament, New Testament. Hey, New Testament, do you pick up Isaiah 56 any place and see its fulfillment um, between the first and second comings of Christ? In other words, does Isaiah 56 have anything to do with us? That, that's that's going to be our question. So we're going to ask that of the New Testament after we look at Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, and I think you know what the answer is going to be. The answer is going to be, well, of, of course Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 has something to do with us. But let's hear this, the word of God. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them. I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him 
and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds my covenant, holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. So that is the passage. Pretty clear, isn't it? Um, Let me make some observations to help you see what's going on here. First, the section of the book of Isaiah, starting at chapter 40, all the way through chapter 66, is pointing forward to the days of the Messiah and in some places to the eternal state. Okay, so most people see Isaiah kind of like a, like a mini Bible. It has 66 chapters and the first 39 deal with Israel then and the next 27 or however many it is. Um, yeah, it is. Um, deal with the future and the Israel's servant. So there's a lot of chastisement. There's a lot of um, scolding that goes on in the first part of Isaiah. But the last part of Isaiah, the part of Isaiah that is more than the first part picked up by the New Testament is promise of a future day and blessing. So that's just a general observation. Um, And this section includes language pointing forward to the time primarily between the two comings of Christ. Uh, We could call this the inter-advental days of the Messiah. Uh, Advent means coming. He came for once, he's coming again. And between the two comings are the days in which we live. This is the days of the inaugurated new covenant, we might say. And it's understood this way, that is this chapter, this this section, uh, is understood this, by the way, you know that the chapter divisions, Isaiah didn't write the chapter divisions. Somebody else wrote the chapter divisions. I think, I know, we often use chapter divisions and versification, often, we sometimes use it in the wrong way as if one section doesn't go with another because there's a number in there, okay? Somebody inserted those a long time ago to help us, and they can be helpful. But I, I think if Isaiah was here, he says, why are you reading me like this? I wrote an entire book. You need to take this uh, in its context. And I think Isaiah would also say, why are you just reading me all by myself? I am one of the prophets in a school there." We have a school of prophets in ancient Israel. There's the major prophets and the minor prophets. You've got to read all the prophets together when it's talking about the days of Messiah. I think Isaiah would tell us that, and I would say, thank you, brother, but we already get that, all right? Just pipe down. I, hopefully I wouldn't do that to Isaiah. So there are many places where Isaiah 56 or its surrounding context are taken up by the New Testament and seen as applicable to the inter-advental days of the inaugurated new covenant. If you want a list of those, I can give you later. This isn't a lecture. I'm preaching the word of God, um, so I'm not going to just give all the verses out, but many places. We'll see some of them in a minute, by the way. Second observation, Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, speaks prophetically of a day in redemptive history in which God will save Gentiles. Did you see that in verses 7 and 8? We read this. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer. Now, for all the peoples is an Isianic way of saying Gentiles as well as Jews, okay? So this is uh, all nations, we might say, are included in this prophecy. And all nations are being blessed 
through the actions of the servant of God is a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 3, Galatians 3, 8, and 16 says, and the seed is Christ. Christ is the blessing, the Jew who blesses the nations, okay? So this is, this is Abrahamic language is picked up by Isaiah when he's talking about the future. We have Gentiles who are going to be a part of this blessing, this all nations. And this Abrahamic promise of the blessing, uh, a, a Jew blessing uh, all the nations is, is pursued by what we call the Great Commission as well. So Isaiah is speaking about the days of the inaugurated New Covenant. Third, in several New Testament texts, the language of Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, and the broader context, is applied to the days between Christ's first and second comings in the language of fulfillment, okay? So Isaiah is the language of promise and fulfillment. We've got a promise motif, we've got a fulfillment motif in the New Testament. For instance, listen to Matthew 21, 13. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the Isianic language anticipates the inclusion of Gentiles in the house of God, a common New Testament phenomenon. How about Acts 26, uh, Acts 8, 26 through 40? Now, we're not going to read that section, but you remember when, when Philip came up to the Ethiopian eunuch and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, I wish it was, in one sense, part of me wishes it was Isaiah 56 that the eunuch was reading from. Why? Because there's eunuch language in Isaiah 56. We'll deal with that in a second. But he's reading from Isaiah 58. And Philip interprets Isaiah 58. Uh, I believe it was Isaiah 58. And as if, well, not as if. Philip interprets Isaiah's passages in 58 terminating in their fulfillment in the days between the two comings of Christ, okay? So Philip sees it that way. Um, also, if you listen to uh, the fact or think about the fact that a eunuch was reading from Isaiah, listen to the Isaiah 56, 3 and 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Now, I'm making a big deal about this eunuch thing because listen to Deuteronomy 23:21. This would have been applicable to ancient Israel under the older Mosaic covenant. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilate, mutilation, eunuch, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So restrictions were placed upon eunuchs by God under the older Mosaic covenant. So whatever... Isaiah's talking about it can't be the older Mosaic Covenant because it restricted eunuchs from doing things in the church, we might say. Isaiah is speaking about a day in which eunuchs are just like anybody, any other believer. They don't have those restrictions because those restrictions were temporal for a period of time, and when their terminus came, they went. Those restrictions went. So Isaiah is prophesying about a day in redemptive history when those restrictions no longer apply. So eunuchs will be in the house of God. Do you know that in Ephesians 2.19, the church is called the household of God. And 1 Timothy 3.15 is called the house of God, of God. Where's Paul getting household of God and house of God language? It's getting it from the prophets. The context of 1 Timothy 3.15 includes chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where Paul 
outlines regulations for church prayer. So Paul identifies the church, pillar and ground of support of the truth, as the household of God, and he does that in the context of just giving the church prescriptions on how to have public prayer meetings as a church, basically. Now, here's Isaiah 56, 7. Even them, the foreigners, Gentiles, of verse 6, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The New Testament sees Isaiah's prophecy as fulfilled under the inaugurated New Covenant. However, the privileges, responsibilities, and the people of God foretold in Isaiah 56 in the motif of fulfillment are transformed to fit the redemptive historical conditions brought in by the inaugurated New Covenant through the shedding of the blood of the Son of God for us. Let me explain what I mean by that. The people of God are transformed from a typical people of God to believing Jews and Gentiles. Remember Isaiah 56 is including eunuchs and Gentiles in the house of God, in the house of prayer. The house of God is transformed. The burnt offerings, sacrifices, and altar are transformed from Old Covenant priestly acts to our bodies presented as living and holy sacrifices, sacrifices of praise to God, and offering up of spiritual sacrifices. The people of God are transformed. Why? Fit the conditions of this new covenant. It's Jew, Gentile, and one body. The activities of the people of God are transformed. Isaiah uses Old Covenant language to depict New Covenant actions, sacrifices, altar, gifts, you know, all those kinds of things. But scholars have figured this out before, way before I lived, that the prophets often use the language of ancient Israel to talk about the church age. That's what they're doing here. So when you, when you come into the New Testament, is there a priesthood? Yes. Is it the same priesthood of the old? No. It got transformed, didn't it? Yeah. Are there sacrifices? Yes. Are they the same sacrifices of the old, as the old? No. They got transformed. Are there um Is there an altar? Is there a mountain? We'd say, well, if you sing hymns from the Trinity hymnal, yeah, there is, because they use that language to talk about the church gathering on the Lord's Day. This is a high place. We're on a high mountain right now. Um, Not Mount Sinai, though. And... uh, figurative language for the place where God meets his people on the earth, the place where God manifests his omnipresence in a particular uh, fashion to creatures, the place, places where God's means are utilized and God blesses them. Those are high places. Those are mountains. Those are uh, altars, we might say. So everything gets transformed. There's a priesthood old, there's a priesthood new, there are sacrifices old, there are sacrifices new, there's Sabbath old, there's Sabbath renewed. I think it's the only way to read this uh, uh, in, in conjunction with the New Testament is that Isaiah is talking about New Testament days. Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer. Didn't he turn tables over one time after he said that too? Isaiah 56 is where he gets that from, and it's coming to fulfillment now. Paul uses household of God language there. Paul and Peter use Christians offering sacrifices, that is, themselves, their bodies, Romans 12, 1 and 2, or their lips that are speaking, hopefully, from thankful hearts, the sacrifice of the praise of our lips, or spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, First Peter chapter 2. You see what's happening there? Same language, but 
it looks different in fulfillment than it does in promise. Because promise is an age of shadow. Promise is an age of type. Promise is an age that looks to fulfillment, but the language of promise doesn't spell out fulfillment in and of itself. Unless, of course, you think we should go to Jerusalem, offer animal sacrifices uh, on an altar. Most Christians are going to frown at that and say, no, we shouldn't do that at all. So I hope you see what's happening here. Uh, Jeremiah, by the way, does the same thing with the promise of the new covenant. What was promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah is fulfilled in the Jew-Gentile church. So he uses Old Testament language, house of Judah, house of Israel, Jeremiah 31, 31. But he's ultimately, he's talking about the Jew-Gentile church of the inter-advental era of the inaugurated new covenant. It's all over the place, by the way. It's why I call the Israel of Old Testament eschatology is the church, Jew-Gentile church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a there's an Israel in Old Testament eschatology, in Old Testament prophetic eschatology. Looking forward, it talks about an Israel, and that Israel ends up being Jesus and his people, actually. So, Old Testament prophecy about the Sabbath has to be understood as the prophets utilizing old covenant forms of worship, Sabbath, new moons, incense, sacrifices. These old covenant forms of worship are used to describe worship under the inaugurated new covenant, so they are not intended to be understood literally. The prophets utilize old covenant language but prophesy a transformed Sabbath to be kept under the new covenant, a day of sacred rest that reflects the redemptive historical era in which it is to be rendered. That's why some people call the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath, a Sabbath that has something to do with Christ and his followers. Uh, Sabbath would be an old thing, a very old institution, creation. Christian would reflect the redemptive historical conditions brought in by our Lord Jesus Christ. So the people of God are transformed. The house of God is transformed. The burnt offering, sacrifices, and altar are transformed. And the Sabbath is transformed, all to fit the conditions brought in by virtue of the sufferings and glory of Christ. That's what I came back for, to say that. Yeah, that's a lot. And I I did read a lot because I I wanted to be very careful. But uh, uh, if you study the New Testament's use of the old, in one sense, that was a no-brainer of an exercise. The New Testament constantly draws from the old, and it says, This, either what we're experiencing or what I'm talking about, is that. But this is quite often not that understood literally. You you can't do that. Well, you can do it if you want, but I think it's wrong. This is that. But the prophets used the language of the day that the people, initial uh, readers, could, could understand something of it. But here's a statement that God told me once in 1 Peter chapter 1, through Peter. The prophets knew that they weren't serving their own generation, but you, upon whom the gospel has been announced, you to whom the gospel has been announced. 
So even the prophets knew, on the one hand, they were serving their generation, but in terms of it's their eschatology, their pointing forward, they knew they weren't serving their own generation, but the generation surrounding the incarnate Son of God's ministry, because they were looking forward to the sufferings and the glory of Christ. So when we read the New Testament, and it picks up on Isianic motifs, Themes taught in the book of Isaiah, um, words, phrases, texts, and, and it does that in many ways. Um, what we are to do is to realize Isaiah was speaking about these days. Matter of fact, the language in those days is very important to, um, to understand as well. So I've got to land this plane early today, which is good news, I think. When these consideration, with these considerations before us, between the two advents of Christ, okay, between the two comings of Christ, when the old covenant law restricting eunuchs no longer restricts them, because remember, that's what Isaiah is saying. I'm talking about a day in the future when Gentiles will be in the house of God and eunuchs won't have the restrictions that God imposed upon them under the old covenant. So between the advents, when the old covenant law restricting units no longer restricts them, and when the nations, Gentiles, are becoming the Lord's and frequenting his house, which is his church, a Sabbath remains for the people of God. Isaiah then is speaking prophetically of Sabbath keeping during the era of the inaugurated New Covenant. Now, most of us have heard of the English Puritan John Bunyan, okay? John Bunyan's famous for The Pilgrim's Progress. He's written several other really classic volumes. I think The Pilgrim's Progress is one of the highest selling uh, English uh, pieces of literature in the history of the world. Here's what he says about Isaiah 56. It follows from hence that the Sabbath that as a promise annexed to the keeping of it is rather that which the Lord Jesus shall give to the churches of the Gentiles. That's his observation on Isaiah 56. What is Isaiah talking about? Well, he is talking about some sort of Sabbath that the Lord Jesus is going to give to his Gentile churches. Was there a meal for the old covenant people of God? Yes. Is there a meal for the new covenant people of God? Yes. This new meal, though, takes on its characteristics by virtue of incarnation, sufferings, and glory. This meal is conditioned by the redemptive realities of the incarnate Son of God. Was there a day for the old covenant people of God? Yes. Is there a day for the new covenant people of God? Yes. But the day for the new covenant people of God is conditioned by the redemptive historical realities wrought by the incarnate Son of God. Okay? That's where we're going with all this. This is easy stuff. We all get it. It's profound in one sense, um, and I think it's very helpful to see things this way. So I think Bunyan's right. Isaiah 56 is speaking prophetically of that which is given to the church by Christ. And I think he is right. This is why the old Puritans called the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath part is uh, the one day in seven. The Christian part is a new creation has come in by virtue of the resurrection of the Son of God on the first day of the week. So that is our, that's the day that we celebrate. That's, that's day of all the week the best. Why? Because it looks back to the resurrection of the Son of God. That's our hope. That he, in fact, was raised from the dead. It looks forward to heaven's high noon, whatever the, the, the hymn writer called it in the hymn we just sang. It looks forward as well. It's a weekly reminder of the greatest redemptive historical act ever, cross-resurrection of the Son of God. And it looks forward 
weekly as a type or symbol of em or emblem, a constant emblem that reminds us of the eternal rest to come. This should make us happy. Sundays should be a happy day. Not frivolous, okay? I didn't say that. We ought to worship God with reverence and awe. But we ought to look forward to uh, the Lord's Day. Who's that preacher? Friday's here, but Sunday's are coming. Uh, I appreciate the attitude of that. Why? Because uh, not only do we get to see each other, and and, and the horizontal part's wonderful, um, and, and, you know, I love you, and you love me because God commands you and like a lot of things I do, but not everything I do, okay? I get that. It's the, it's the transaction from heaven to earth that's more important than, than this stuff. This stuff's good, important, and all that, but the most important is, is that God serves us grace, and God has instituted from creation one day in seven to ultimately point to that day, the last and final day, but the first Adam failed to work and then enter into some final rest. But the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, works and then enters into his rest as God did from his own works. Hebrews 4, which we'll get to in a month or two, less than a month or two. But see what's happening with the this fits the last Adam, first Adam, last Adam stuff as well. The first Adam was to work unto rest. He didn't do that unto a, a final rest. Because uh, when, when it says that God rested, if God's work of creation was exemplary for the creature in his image to follow, to pattern himself after God's six days of creation, you know, the God... It didn't take God six days to create. God took six days to create for a reason. So we'd have a weekly cycle, okay? Well, the divine rest has to be exemplary somehow and some way. And if you study out God, uh, God building and then God assuming a posture of lordship over or rest over, you'll see that uh, the Old Testament talks about that and connects it with creation itself, and the making of the temple, where God does something and then enters into this posture, we'll call it, of lordship over, um, so, so that Adam was supposed to work and be crowned with rest by virtue of his work, but he, he sinned. Last Adam comes on the scene. He does what the first Adam failed to do, and then calls all his second Adam Adamites, all his last Adam recipients, to, to enjoy the rest he has given, and then out of it, go live for him. See, the cycle changed because a new creation came in. Remember the words of John Owen, what could change the day of the Sabbath? Why, a new creation the inauguration of a new creation. But we are not in the Sabbath in its ultimate emblematic function when there's no sin, no sorrows. So our weekly Lord's Day becomes our reminder of great, wonderful things of the past and wonderful things in the future as well. So we could put it this way, the essence of the Sabbath, that is a day to be kept holy to the Lord, it transcends covenantal bounds. Okay, it's not bounded and restricted to only one covenant. We could put it this way. Its roots are in creation, not the Mosaic covenant exclusively, So God incorporates into the Mosaic or Old Covenant aspects of the creation-based Sabbath to suit them, to fit them, to serve them during their existence under the Old Covenant. Could it be that God incorporates aspects of the creational Sabbath 
into the new covenant to serve us, to help us, to be a blessing to us. And of course, I'm going to argue yes on that. So this one day to be kept holy to the Lord transcends covenants, we could say, and cultures, because the ethics of creation are transcovenantal and transcultural. Our Lord's Day is the way we try to utilize the fourth commandment in application of the moral law to our life, something like that. Time set apart for special service to God is written in our hearts. The exact day on which we ought to do that, God needs to tell us. It takes a positive or special revelation from God. I think he has, the prophets. There's another thing that happens with the prophets, and that is the Old Testament prophesies the abrogation and cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths. Now, let me say my first proposition over again, the one I just tried to prove from Isaiah 56 and other places. The Old Testament prophesies a Sabbath for the inaugurated New Covenant era. Isaiah 56, Jeremiah 31, 33. By the way, you can read in Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 60, 61, 62, someplace in there. There's also Sabbath themes there that are talking about the interadvental days of the New Covenant era. So here we have this. The Old Testament prophesies a Sabbath for the inaugurated New Covenant era. And here's what we'll look at next. The Old Testament prophesies the abrogation and cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths, plural. Now, I chose those words very, very carefully. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, All her appointed feasts shall cease. So we read that in the prophets. That's Hosea. We'll look at that after lunch. So we've got to deal with both. Uh, Some sort of prophetic uh, perpetuity of some sort of Sabbath in the interadvental days of the inaugurated new covenant. And yet... Fulfillment by abrogation of other Sabbaths. You know that the ancient Israel had the weekly Sabbath, and then they had non-weekly periodic Sabbaths, plural, all instituted by God. So we're going to have to deal with that thread of teaching in the prophets as well. Now, if you're here, and you are here, by the way, everyone's here. Did you, you didn't hear me say it in these words. But the reason why we're wrestling with all this stuff is because of Jesus. Because when when Jesus comes on the scene, not only does he do this, but the apostles do it. They often dip back into the Old Testament and they say, this is it. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Changes are coming. Remember Jesus and the woman at the well? He told her that there is going to be changes in worship in light of his coming as well. It used to be that the center for worship for the public people of God was was Jerusalem and a physical temple. And Jesus prophesied, basically, that it's not going to be that way anyway anymore because of who he is and what he came to do. He came to be the, um, the embodiment of ancient Israel, an idealized Israel, a perfect Israel, perfect servant of God, something Israel constantly failed. But he came also to be the last Adam as well. Adam and Israel are kind of similar in the sense that they're God's people in God's place under God's, God's rule who failed. Jesus doesn't fail. But Jesus, when he fulfills all righteousness, when he fulfills the typology of the Old Testament, he transforms things so that there's still priests who offer up spiritual sacrifices 
to God that are acceptable to God through Christ. And true believers are all priests, males, females, adults, and children. He still has a temple. It's not the physical temple with physical sacrifices and a physical altar, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is his temple where sacrifices are offered and we throw ourselves on an altar, the altar of service. So all these things that were prophesied, for instance, by Isaiah, do come to fulfillment through Christ, but this side of the cross and resurrection, the application or the uh, uh, exactly what it looks like differs than the old because that to which the old pointed is now here. Jesus changes everything. Um, somebody asked Dr. G.K. Beale one time, Dr. Beale, just what is new in the New Testament? And he said, not much. What he means by that is the Old Testament is the slow but sure setting up the world for what the Gospels announce to us. The Son of God has mysteriously taken to himself uh, a whole human nature in the womb of the virgin. And even when that's happening, you can hear our first century Jewish brethren in the gospel accounts going, hey, it's here. What what they said was going to, what the prophet said was going to take place, it's here. So, So that he comes in fulfillment of the Old Testament and these prophecies for example, Isaiah 56, um, find their fulfillment between the days of his two comings. Well, I'm just in need of landing the plane, and it's 1049, 1050. So I'll be able to do that, and then we're going to sing a hymn in response to this. I think and I hope these hymns that I chose today, two of them, are going to really seal the deal for you. You'll see see how these hymn writers framed themselves, their words, in light of the subject we're addressing and uh, utilizing terms and phrases and concepts throughout the scriptures to 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 hone in on on the importance of uh, the Lord's day. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the written word of God. It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to try to put its parts together and figure out uh, how to understand it properly and then what are our given responsibilities in light of it. These aren't the easiest issues, especially with dealing with the ancient prophets. When they're speaking about the days of the new covenant, it's very hard to understand that sometimes. But we, we tried, I tried to, rely on the New Testament's use of the old to help us understand the old. In other words, I tried to use God's word to help us understand God's word. And as I did that accurately, bless it. And if I didn't, take it from our memories. Help us to not uh, not to lose the main thing. And the main thing is that you are gracious to us in Christ. And in light of the great grace, the great love with which you loved us, uh, we owe you our all. We can't pay you back, but we can say, Lord, here I am. Use me. So bless your word. Help us to sing your praises uh, this final time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.